I'm Daniel Giacopelli, and this is the weekly podcast from Courier. It's fair to say that few companies and fewer employees are planning a total return to the office anytime soon. So because of that, it's easy to think that the modern office and co-working spaces among them are totally doomed. But that's a superficial reading of what's actually going on. Despite the really public fall from grace of a few major co-working and membership clubs, the sector, despite all the challenges, isn't dead. If you do a Google News search right now for the word co-working, you'll see tons of stories of co-working companies gearing up to open, from a female-focused one to another from mental health professionals. You'll see trend pieces on why suburban spaces are the industry's future, and others about why this might be the moment for co-working spaces in shopping malls. People have a hunger to return to a shared workspace, and loads of operators will be there to meet the demand. They might shift their offerings or their models and projections, but they'll be there. This year, the sector's forecasted to grow at half the rate of the previous two years, according to a study. But from 2021, it's expected to rebound and grow at 21% a year for the next few years. Today, we'll talk with two co-working founders who have insight on where things are actually heading. First up, if you listen to the Courier Daily podcast, where we caught up with founders in the middle of a pandemic, you'll remember Josh Wyatt. He's the CEO of Noya House, a private workspace for creative entrepreneurs with locations in New York and California. Back then, Josh had to close all of his locations and furlough the majority of his staff. So three and a half months later, what's changed? When we last spoke, which I think was mid-April, we had just furloughed roughly 95% of our staff, which consisted of about 235 people out of about 250 people. At the time, it was absolutely the most you know, emotional, gut-wrenching decision that I had ever made in my career. What we did after the dust settled, and it took you know, a couple of weeks to really get through the processes, both legally and otherwise, and emotionally. But once the dust settled a bit, we were able to approach things from a more clear and focused perspective. And I think in this situation and what we're all facing is trying to manage through what has really been one crisis after the other. I think the way that we've approached and the way that I've approached it personally has been to try to slow things down once you get through the immediate crisis and the immediate panic and try to put some framework around what the future looks like. And so to that end, over the last two or three months, we've really focused on communicating effectively weekly, daily with employees, both active and furloughed, and really providing them a sense of clarity. I think back in March and April, when everyone was trying to figure out what the world looked like, there was just a total lack of clarity. And lack of clarity over a consistently long amount of time starts to create confusion and concern and stress. We don't have the answers any better than anyone else. I think what we have been able to do quite well as both a company and a leadership team is to start to provide a sense of clarity through solid communications and really delivering on the words that we say. So using action to follow up on the words, being transparent about not knowing everything. But what we do know, you know, even in a limited capacity, we try to follow up with sincere and dedicated action. And that's sort of the best that we can do on a daily basis. And whatever we can control in terms of our destiny, we try to really action that with a sense of a sense of purpose and a, and a sense of commitment. 
And, you know, Josh, we've been talking with tons of businesses, particularly in the hospitality communities, bars, restaurants, who have reopened. And then, of course, there's been a surge in cases of COVID, and now they've had to close back down again. I know you run a couple spaces in California that have had to open up again and then close, right? We do, yeah. So we took a view initially back in May that we, you know, after getting through the first sort of six weeks or so of the big initial surge of COVID from mid-March until sort of end of April, we took a view that despite the fact we probably could have legally opened, you know, by late May, we decided not to. We decided to wait to see what would happen in June. We also felt that we needed more time to prepare all the houses with respect to the proper health and safety rules and regulations and design aspects, as well as operational training. So we opened, I'd say probably two to three weeks later than most businesses. We decided to open July 9th after the 4th of July in the United States. And by that time, we had had the chance to enact these new health and safety initiatives both from the physical capital side of things and from the operational training side of things. You know, we were riding a high on July 9th. It was a very emotional week for us. It was great to see people back, people meaning both staff and members, back inside of Neuhaus in Madison Square in New York and in the Bradbury Building in downtown L.A. and in Hollywood. And then lo and behold, five days later, on the 13th of July, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, issued a statewide lockdown, which was similar in nature to the lockdown that they put in place in March and April. And so we've had to now close. And again, you know, the feeling is emotional. The feeling is one of frustration, but yet at the same time, one of sense of obligation and duty to society to do the right thing to close. I think there's no question that you have to do it given the surge that's happened. However, what I would say today versus four months ago when we closed for the first time on March 16th is we are better prepared both mentally, financially, and emotionally this time around. And that preparation and that experience has really come from sharpening and honing our skill set over the last four months. I really liken it in a lot of ways, and and I I personally, over the last four months, have studied leaders and businesses and countries that have gone through, you know, deeply challenging situations, you know, specifically really looking at wartime leaders and how, you know, in, in a period of war, how have presidents or generals or countries managed through this? And there's a lot of great lessons in history. There's actually a lot of bad lessons as well in terms of how not to do it. And, you know, I've tried to take inspiration from some of the leaders who have kept a cool head. A good example would be John F. Kennedy, you know, being put in a really tough situation back during the Cold War and, and really having, you know, a bunch of options at his disposal, whereby he was getting advice from a number of different people that most likely was the wrong advice. And he was able to manage through that in a calm way and in a prepared way, such that as his time in office progressed, he was able to provide a sense of clarity and confidence to not only his staff around him, but to the country. We're in no way anywhere close to, you know, to that level of importance. But, uh, you know, we're just a small company. But I do think that what we do and how we do and how we're prepared now, I think is just night and day ahead of where we were four months ago. And, and that's what I'm trying to work through with my staff and my team 
and with our members. You know, we are better now today at communicating with our members than we were four months ago. I think that transparency and that clarity of communication has really, we think and we hope, built up a sense of confidence in, in what we're doing as a company and as a business. That was Josh Wyatt from Neue House. Next up, back in May, we caught up with Gabby Hersham. She's the co-founder of Huckletree, a co-working company with spots in London, Manchester, Dublin, and Oslo. This week, I caught up with Gabby's co-founder, Andrew Lynch, to find out how they're actually shifting their business and product to meet the new reality. As Andrew tells it, it has everything to do with flexibility. Pre-COVID, it used to be, I want a 20-person studio, 15 now because I'm growing into it. Right now, if I have 15, it may be 10 in the next six months. And actually of those 10, two or three might be in every day. And it might be a varying two or three because I'm now implementing a 50 or 75% work from home policy. So in essence, we're saying, okay, well, the 15 or 12 person team now, because of these policies, which are actually, in our view, incredibly healthy and will promote a massive amount of productivity. But we're looking about how we fit into that because I think one huge thing is the experience. And I think we want to make sure that the added value of having a, you know, a centralized HQ or, or a smaller studio for people that say need to work from a specific workspace and not home, that the value that we're bringing to them far outweighs the expense. So it, it's a kind of a strange area that we're operating in at the moment because everyone is looking for huge amounts of flexibility. And because we've been relatively financially prudent, it means that we're kind of able to deliver that. Whereas there are lots of operators, as I said, that have bought in at the top, so to speak, over the last five years, that their cost base is just fundamentally higher than many other operators. And they have a certain level of income that they need to derive from each desk, which makes it much, much harder to be ultra flexible. Yeah. And I suppose the flexibility also helps as a cushion for when things go bad again, right? If we go back into lockdown in a couple of weeks, in a couple of months, you know, some people could flex down in terms of the hours they spend at the office some people you know might stay the same rather than if you just had one membership for a company that might just cut and run completely right yeah exactly i think this kind of work from home policy we see it as a kind of a longer term trend i don't think it's you know a lockdown policy or kind of a two or three months post lockdown policy we think it's not a perk anymore remember you know a year ago myself and gabby our ceo talking about you know what extra can we do? And it was like, oh, is this flexible working something we could look into? And, and we did. But now it's it's almost not a perk. It's like a given. And with it being a given, certainly at the kind of early stage, you're, you're now looking at some of the bigger tech companies even saying they're going to implement that across you know forever, kind of a perpetual work from home bit. I think we're more worried about the, you know, how that impacts culture, how that impacts, you know, the people that actually prefer working, you know, side by side with their peers, etc. So yeah, so we're definitely doubling down on this flexible model, but equally we're really doubling down on the fact that we're not just providing a service. We're effectively you know, over the short term, trying to rebuild an ecosystem. And over the kind of medium to long term, we're trying to adapt to the flexible needs and requirements that our members now demand from us. I mean, that was the micro view. That was Huckletree, you know, with your operator hat on. But what about the macro view? It seemed for a while there, for a couple of years, that it just co-working has become really, really frothy and bubbly. And like everywhere you look, there's another cafe who is renting out tables for, you know, 10 quid an hour for you to work at. And just Everywhere there is a co-working space now, super saturated. Will that increase because more people are, you know, remote working or will that just cut out all of the less good ones and only the, you know, the strong will remain? 
Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think co-working is a, a phrase that has kind of grown in its definition over the last couple of years. For example, you know, the 20-person co-working space, like our first co-working space in Clarkham, I was 39 people. I'll never forget, you know, we were making 15 grand a month and we were delighted with ourselves. At the time, 2014, that was what we'd consider a co-working space. You kind of think small, highly personalized, mostly made up of early stage startups, you know, one, two, three person teams. That was kind of co-working. And then there was the other side of what co-working seems to have evolved into, which is in essence, serviced office. So again, 20 years ago, you think serviced office, you think Regis. So then kind of we were came along and purported to have disrupted the whole model. And, and outwardly, it was very community focused, startup focused, you know, beers on tap, et cetera, et cetera. And now they're essentially... 50, 60, 70% of businesses from enterprise is from much, much larger businesses kind of moved into that service office sector. And then you have, you know, we worked new CEO coming out over the last couple of weeks saying in essence that their community staff are only glorified receptionists. You see kind of WeWork starting off in whatever, 2008, nine, going from co-working and right now, kind of developing and getting so big and essentially being a service office. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's a, a fundamentally different product to what we're trying to you know, sell into the market. And what has happened and what will happen is there will be this retrenching of the definition of what a working space, you know, we like to say kind of workspace accelerator, somewhere where the key focus of the product is on acceleration. And that's not saying we don't have enterprise members. We don't have larger, bigger teams. But part of the mandate for bringing them in a specific mandate and requirement is that they feed back into the community. So whether it's Accenture, whether it's Butternut Box, the bigger they grow, the more they learn. And what we want to do is re-inject that learning back into the early stage businesses we house. Now, that obviously differs hugely from a lot of the bigger service office operators, and landlords who are now getting in on the action, whereas they see that the real estate side of it is fundamentally changing and becoming more flexible. So where do I see the market? I see it definitely splitting. You know, last year, for example, we launched our first, you know, sector and team focused space in Westminster Public Hall with our partners public, which is entirely focused on GovTech, i.e. where government services interact with technology and how to empower government to take a more technology-based and digital look at how governments operate. And that essentially has been our kind of jewel in the crown. People see space and being a member of that space is far more than just being desks and seats. I think we've been ahead of the curve in trying to really reposition the business and the business model into being more than just a service office play. And I think now what we're seeing due to the economic scenario that we've seen over the last couple of months and that we're likely to see over the next two years is that bigger landlords facing voids and vacancy are going to see what we've been looking at for quite some time in that the, the huge amount of operational leverage that can be applied to, to service offices, proper service offices, large scale, two, three, four hundred person studios. And landlords now are getting in on the action, which we've seen CBRE and a lot of, you know, JLL, a lot of other big providers looking at that flexible space. So I definitely do see it's going to be a divergence of product type. Something we've kind of been, been harping on about for quite a while. And that's it for this week. Make sure to check out our new workshop podcast, which we launched just a few days ago. Each episode explores the nitty-gritty of one business topic, from finance to marketing to human resources, really digging into it so you could understand it and hopefully apply it to your own business. You could head to the show notes of this show for a link. 
but just search for Courier Workshop. And as always, if you've got any questions, comments, or feedback about anything at all, you can reach me at daniel at couriermedia.co. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. The Courier Weekly's back again next week.